the case for space. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Dr. Robert Zubrin, author, president of Pioneer Astronautics, and co-founder and president of the Mars Society. Welcome, Dr. Zubrin. Thanks for inviting me. Tell us a little bit about your background, your books, and explain the mission of the Mars Society. Well, uh, you know, I'm a child of Sputnik. I was five when it flew, and it may have scared the adults, but it sure excited me. It meant all the science fiction stories I was reading about space travel were going to be true. I wanted to be part of that, so I learned as much science as I could and uh, eventually became an astronautical engineer, um, designing space technologies and space missions, um, and I I've written a number of books on the subject, including The Case for Mars, which explains how we can get to Mars in our time, and The Case for Space, which is broader in its scope, but especially focuses on how this new entrepreneurial space revolution is opening up incredible possibilities. Um, and I helped found the Mars Society, which is an international nonprofit organization that is fighting to help get humans to Mars. So... You mentioned uh, your books. In your latest book, uh, The Case for Space, you include discussions on engineering, science, economics, and policy issues related to establishing a permanent human presence in space. And in your view, what factors have slowed human progress towards that goal so far? Well, you know, the uh, first space age, which I would define from, say, Sputnik through the moon landings, um, 1957 to 72, there was tremendous uh, rapid progress, and it was done by governments, uh, driven by geostrategic competition, and, you know, we wanted to astound the world what free people could do, and we did. Um, but the, after that, uh, the government-led space program lost its uh, initiative and punch and, and, and decisiveness didn't have a clear goal. And it drifted for um, 30, 40 years. Uh, the cost of space launch did not decrease from 1970 to 2010. But since then, uh, it's fallen by a factor of five because we've got a new kid on the block, a new player in the game, and this is private enterprise. Um, we, you know, Elon Musk and SpaceX have initiated a revolution in spaceflight, showing the power and creativity of, of private enterprise. They cut the cost of space launch by a factor of five in the past 10 years. And what we've seen recently, the reusable Falcon rockets, and now the Dragon, uh, developed by SpaceX, taking astronauts up to the space station, taking them back down, um, and uh, really... Um, doing this at a, a tiny fraction of the cost of the government uh, uh, space technology development programs and moving much faster. What industries or technologies that maybe struggle on Earth have the potential to flourish in deep space or on an extraterrestrial body? And what benefits might accrue to Earthlings as a result? Well, okay, uh, Certainly any industry that requires zero gravity can only be done in space. And there have now been demonstrations of uh, development of uh, super efficient fiber optic cables that can be manufactured on orbit uh, and things like that. The other thing that's available in space, of course, is high vacuum. Uh, so technologies that need big vacuum vessels like fusion power can best be done in space. And um, the, the so uh, 
we may well develop fusion energy on the moon before we develop it on Earth. It's quite possible. Also, it would be a tremendous technology for space propulsion. It could take us to the stars. Um, but the other thing is simply that the space enterprise, if it's embraced boldly, makes science the great adventure and youth loves adventure. And this is why the United States tripled the number of science graduates it had during the 1960s when we had the Apollo program. I was one of them. I was one of Sputnik's children. I was one of Apollo's children. And, you know, who were the 40-year-old technical entrepreneurs who built Silicon Valley in the 1990s? They were the 10-year-old little boy mad scientists making rocket fuel and robots in the basement in the 1960s. Uh, and, you know, and, and we've benefited from this ever since. Um, a society that's committed to embracing scientific and technical challenge will benefit itself in innumerable ways. When tragedies like Apollo 1, Columbia, and Challenger happened, many people questioned why we would put people in harm's way. If space colonization unfolds as you spell out in your book, we might see entire missions or colonies fail. So how do we condition society to embrace these risks for the rewards that leaving Earth could actually offer? Well, you know, um, none of us live forever. Um, and there's a lot more people dying right now from coronavirus, even if they try to stay as safe as they can and do nothing at all than has ever died or ever likely to die in a space accident. Um, but by advancing our technology, and, and for instance, I know a biologist involved in the space program who has developed a test for coronavirus could detect it in 20 minutes. As soon as that thing is deployed, if the FDA will just approve it, we can identify carriers, quarantine them, release everyone else. The, the, you know, we'll save hundreds of thousands of lives uh, by unleashing our technological potential. No society has ever done better by avoiding uh, uh, the risk of, of, of technological exploration. No society has ever failed because it had too much scientific knowledge. Um, you know, uh, no society has ever succeeded by avoiding challenge. NASA's Mars 2020 Perseverance spacecraft is heading towards the red planet as we speak. Suppose in a year or two, one of the instruments on the rover detects indisputable evidence of primitive life. What are the moral and ethical considerations of humans transforming the planet for our own use? Well, life has always transformed planets. The Earth has been massively transformed by life. The first life forms on Earth couldn't tolerate oxygen, then photosynthetic plants transformed the atmosphere, and the original inhabitants had to go underground, where, by the way, they still are doing fine in the groundwater for the past three billion years, while the rest of the surface carried on. Life evolves, life transforms the planet, uh, life uh, has radically transformed the planet. Humans are, are no exception to this, but I think humans, by uh, if we can indeed terraform Mars and make its surface livable in the same sense that the Earth is, we will open up opportunities for vast new communities of life, plants, animals, uh, you name it. Uh, 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 and, and frankly, I think we would be negligent in our duty to the rest of the community of life, which has elevated us into our leadership position, if you will. Uh, if we didn't do that, we'd be letting the rest of the community of life down. 
uh, humans are not the enemies of life. Humans are the vanguard of life. Dr. Robert Zubrin, president of Pioneer Astronautics and co-founder and president of the Mars Society, oh, and author of The Case for Space. You get such detailed uh, explanation of why we need to be uh, moving forward and why we need to be colonizing. If, if somebody wants to maybe get a copy of your book, uh, Dr. Zubrin, or maybe they just want to contact you, what's the best way they can do that? Well, okay, first of all, my books are available in many places. For example, Amazon.com, both The Case for Mars and Case for Space and paper and Kindle and audio. Uh, and uh, then um, if they want to um, contact me, they can do it through the Mars Society. We're at marssociety.org. And by the way, we're having an international teleconvention October 15th through 18th. Anyone can attend anywhere in the world. It's free. We're going to have speakers from all over the world talking about everything having to do on Mars, from the current robotic missions on Mars to human exploration to terraforming the planet. Thanks again, Robert. Thank you. And find more of my interviews right here or at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.